0: Welcome, everyone. How are y'all? Doing well? Good. So, thank you so much for coming out tonight. My name is Father Andrew Merrick, the pastor here at Christ the King. I will um, open us up in a prayer uh, after uh, that. Then, Dr. Baglow will come and give our presentation tonight on science and the Bible. Dr. Baglow, I met him after I left LSU as an undergrad after three years. I transferred to uh, St. Ben's or St. Joseph Seminary College, and it was interesting for me on numerous levels, right, because the the idea of being a priest literally came out of nowhere for me, so that that whole transition was a big thing, but my coursework at LSU was very heavy on math and science, and so I'm going in to like studying philosophy and theology and like what is this going to be like, and one of my first professors was Dr. Baglow, and the first class, I think I took 10 pages of notes, front and back, just like going, I thought, this, this is not going to be good. <laughs> he's a great teacher, he's a great teacher, so it's fantastic. He taught at St. Joseph's Seminary College, then taught at Notre Dame Seminary in New Orleans, and is now a theology professor at Notre Dame University in Indiana, And he can tell you the specific department that he's in with all that fun stuff of faith and science. But he's an expert on this topic, actually has a textbook about it. So again, I'll open up in prayer and then give the mic to Dr. Bagelow. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Come Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, that you would allow our minds and hearts and souls to be fertile soil, that your word may be planted deeply and bear great fruit. We ask for a particular anointing tonight on Dr. Baglow and ourselves that as we can hear what you, you desire us to receive about the, the unity, Lord, of faith and science. We entrust our time to you through the intercession of St. Joseph and the Immaculate Virgin Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. So please welcome Dr. Baglow.
1: You are a much better student than you give yourself credit for. That was a lot of fun, actually, teaching you guys back at the seminary at the beginning of my career. And it's awesome for me to be back in Louisiana right now when it's about negative one in South Bend, Indiana. Um, I have spent 45 of my, well, I won't tell you exactly how many years of life right here in the state of Louisiana. I was born and raised in New Orleans, my wife too, um, and we raised our children there and I taught high, Catholic high school religion there, and then ultimately moved on to work at uh, the seminary, Our Lady of Holy Cross College, and then Notre Dame Major Seminary in New Orleans. And during that period of time, actually, we were Katrina refugees for a little while. And while I was evacuated to Bunkie, Louisiana, some of you might even know where that is, um, I got a phone call from a priest in Mobile, Alabama, who made an interesting proposal to me. He said, I uh, am the president of McGill-Tulin Catholic High School, his name is Father Bryce Shields, and we have just raised significant amount of money to build a whole new science center at our school. And we're building new labs, we're hiring new faculty, and as a priest, I'm concerned that as we improve our science curriculum, students will have plenty of questions about the relationship between the science that they're learning and their Catholic faith. And I was wondering if you would be interested in developing a curriculum for us in science and religion. Now this was a, uh, an offer that I had no credentials to undertake, but I also, at the time, wasn't sure that I would have a job anymore. Our Lady of Holy Cross College had shut down for the semester for sure and the rumor on the street was that it would not open again. So many of our students that we serve were from St. Bernard Parish and St. Bernard Parish was devastated by Katrina. And so I said yes because I knew at least for a semester I would have time to work on it. And that changed the course of my life. Um, Over the next two years I wrote the textbook as I continued to teach and then more and more and more in my kind of extracurricular time, in my moonlighting, I was working with various Catholic educational institutions talking about the relationship between science and religion, and how to make a Catholic education an integration of all of the different subjects taught in the light of the gospel. Um, that ultimately introduced me to the McGrath, the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame, for whom I started uh, working as an outside collaborator and then they asked the fateful question, will you come and direct the Science and Religion Initiative? And that's why in July of last summer, my family and I left our beautiful Louisiana home and live in the frozen tundra. (laughs) So if you want me to come back every other week and speak to you, I'll be happy to do so. Just ask Father Merrick to put that into his budget for the coming year. My uh, presentation tonight... Let's see if I can get this to work. There we go. It's called Science and the Bible, the Catholic Approach to the Relationship. As I started working on this curriculum, which became a textbook on faith and science for McGill-Tulin, one of the first areas that I became aware of was, at least in our culture, a battleground between people who believe in God and people who claim to be scientific or scientifically literate. And it has to do entirely with the relationship between the Bible and modern science, and particularly the book of Genesis and modern science. Are these things compatible? How do they come together? What's their relationship? Right? The first thing that we should recognize is the Bible is the very soul of Catholic life, thought, and worship. Right. Well, the Bible is not an optional thing for Catholics as some people might think. As the Second Vatican Council noted, Therefore, like the Christian religion itself, all the preaching of the church must be nourished and regulated by sacred scripture. For in the sacred books, the Father who is in heaven meets his children with great love and speaks with them, and the force and power in the word of God is so great that it stands as the support and energy of the church, the strength of faith for her children, the food of the soul, the pure and everlasting source of spiritual life, right? So this is how important the Bible is for Catholics. And yet it's precisely here where the conflict or the warfare in our culture about science and faith is at its most intense, where the battle lines have become entrenched. On one side of that battle line, you have the atheists, who attack biblical teaching on creation as a wishful, deluded religious daydream, a fantasy of the Bronze Age. A good example of this is the biologist Richard Dawkins. And here's a quote from him, that the Genesis story is just one that happened to have been adopted by one particular tribe of Middle Eastern herders and has no more special status than the belief of a particular West African tribe that the world was created from the excrement of ants. On the other side of the battle line, you have those who sometimes are called creationists, who do mental acrobatics to reject modern science, to call into question 150 years of scientific progress in order to defend the truth of the Bible as if the Bible contained a modern scientific account of the universe and its beginnings. Ken Ham, the world's foremost creationist, sums, this up in, sums it up in this way. This, by the way, is the man who started the Creation Museum in northern Kentucky. Some of you may be aware of it. God created the heavens and the earth fully formed and functioning in six days 6,000 years ago at around 4004 BC. The context of Genesis chapter 1, which, as many of you know, is the seven day account of creation that begins the Bible, um, as well as other places in Scripture, make it clear these days were ordinary 24 hour days. God's original creation was perfect with no death or suffering, not even for animals or microorganisms. This is a complete rejection of two of the greatest discoveries of modern science the age of the earth and the universe, what we call Big Bang cosmology, and the origins and development of life, or evolutionary theory. So, this brings us to the topic of my talk tonight. How should Catholics approach the relationship between the Bible? and modern science. Is the Bible for giving us a scientific understanding of things to correct our scientific mistakes? Should a Catholic scientist use the Bible as a tool for evaluating her findings? If they agree with the Bible, then they're true, and if not, well then I have to go back to the lab and reframe my hypothesis. Should faithful Catholics reject scientific findings if they perceive a difference between what science is saying and what they think the Bible is saying. It's easy to see how such confusion about the relationship between the Bible and science quickly leads to conflict. Because in the end, every new scientific discovery becomes a test of the truth of the Bible. One, to be rejected if it's seen as different than what the Bible says, or to be celebrated if it is seen as agreeing with what the Bible says. So how does the Catholic Church approach this situation? The Church offers a different and better approach to the authority and truth of the Bible that we find uh, either rejected by the atheists or assumed by the creationists. One that does not lead to conflict between faith and science, but that helps us to understand the deepest meaning of the world God created. So tonight I want to do three things. And I would just do them quickly and then go to your questions. I want to approach the Bible in general, understanding what the church teaches about the authority of the Bible and what kind of truth we find there. So as a Catholic theologian, I don't want to claim any more or any less about the truth of the Bible than the Church does. So getting a good understanding of this is key. And as we'll see. The church teaches that the Bible is free from all error from the perspective of saving truth or the truths of our salvation. And I'll talk a little bit about what that means as we go, right? From the perspective of saving truth. But she does not make that claim about other perspectives, including scientific perspectives. And I'll kind of iron that out. The next thing that I want to do is approach the first creation account. Genesis chapter 1, which is so often assumed to be in conflict with modern science and modern scientific discoveries such as the Big Bang and evolution. When we look more closely at Genesis 1, however, we can distinguish it as something both very different than science and also as something even more special, a symbolic account of the world's beginnings that shows us not scientific data but the deepest meaning of the world. And finally, I want to investigate what I think is the most important question about science in the Bible and so often is not even discussed. The relationship between the Bible and science is so often framed as a question of whether or not one or the other confirms what the other is saying, right? Whether the Bible confirms science or whether science agrees with the Bible. But the most recent works within the Bible were written 1,500 years before the scientific method was even developed. So instead of asking, does science confirm the Bible, perhaps we should ask, does the Bible confirm science? That is, is science something that God reveals in sacred scripture that he wants his human creatures to do, right? Or is this just something we're doing on our own time, right? I'm going to talk a little bit about that as we end. And I hope to show that the Bible encourages a scientific approach to reality. Okay, so those three things. And to begin with the first, the Catholic Church and the truth of the Bible. So what does the Church teach about sacred scripture and its truth? I could summarize that very simply as this. That the Church teaches that sacred scripture firmly, faithfully, and without error... Teaches the truth which God, for the sake of our salvation, wished to see confided in it. That's actually a quote from the Second Vatican Council. Another way of saying this is to say that thanks to God's gift of grace to the human authors of the Bible. Does anybody know what we call that grace? Any theologians out there? Inspiration. Inspiration, yes, thank you. Divine inspiration. The Bible contains no error from the perspective of saving truth. Hold that word perspective in your mind because it's important. The perspective of saving truth. Let's explore this idea of perspective. So, as we all know, different perspectives lead us to make different kinds of assertions. From the perspective of chemistry, I, Chris Baglow, am an organic compound, right? I'm a collection of atoms including about 63% hydrogen, 26% oxygen, and so on. Is that true? Sure, it's true. From the perspective of biology, I, Chris Baglow, am a mammal and a member of the hominid species Homo sapiens sapiens. I'm a primate, just ask my wife. I have three sons and they're primates too. Um, From the perspective of another science, a little bit more of a human science, socioeconomics, I am a member of the working middle class with a household of a certain size, right? And finally, from the perspective of the Catholic faith, I am baptized and confirmed. I'm sacramentally married to my wife, Christine, right? I'm a Catholic father. And I'm also a Catholic theologian with certain responsibilities, right, to teach um, within various Catholic institutions. Now. Notice that all the perspectives I gave you just now are valid, and they're not in competition with each other at all. Let's say that I'm concealing from you that I discovered this morning that I just won the Powerball drawing last night, and so I am no longer a member of the working middle class. <laughs> my statement about my middle class status would be a socioeconomic falsehood, would it not? However, even with all that money, I would still be a primate, right? From that perspective, my statement would still be true, right? That is the part that I talked about with biology. So let's go back now to what the church teaches about the Bible. She teaches that from one particular perspective, the perspective of saving truth, the Bible contains no error. The Bible never misleads us. The church says that I come to understand that saving truth only when I read the Bible as a whole and in light of the person and the teaching of Jesus Christ under the guidance of her leaders by the Pope and the bishops, the magisterium of the church through whom the Holy Spirit guides us. Okay, so what does the church mean by saving truth? Well, she means three things. First, she says that in the Bible I will find teachings about the nature of God, who God is, how God sees the whole world, what the divine plan is for our eternal happiness. Those are teachings to be believed in theological terminology, right? Teachings of faith and we summarize them every Sunday at Mass, right, and on Holy Days High Holy Days of Solemnities. In the Creed, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Right? In other words, and we do whenever we pray the rosary, That's that's those are teachings to be believed. But there's another kind of saving truth. Teachings about what it means to live a life pleasing to God. In which we realize His plan for our happiness. In which we become the kind of people that God created us to be. These are often referred to as teachings to be obeyed or moral teachings. And then finally, the church teaches that we will find some important historical truths about the people of Israel, the children of Abraham, and above all, about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his founding of a new people of God open to all of humanity, which we call the church. And of these historical narratives that we find in the Bible, the church singles out one set of them that is guaranteed to be historically sound in all of its major elements. And that's the story of what Jesus Christ did and taught for the sake of our salvation, including the ways in which he showed us that he was not simply fully human, but fully divine through being born of a virgin, through miraculous signs and healings, through his resurrection, Okay, so according to the church, our mother and teacher, under the perspective of what kind of truth? Saving truth. We find in the Bible, without error, truths of faith, truths of morals, and important historical truths about God's chosen people, and above all, the life, death, and resurrection of his son. And this is where the church's claim about truth in the Bible ends. From other perspectives, she honestly tells us the Bible is not guaranteed to be without any error of any kind. Why not? Well, because the books of the Bible are truly human as well as truly divine. And the divine message of the Bible comes to us in and through real human authors with all of their cultural and personal limitations and imperfections. In 2014, the Vatican special think tank on the Bible, it's called the Pontifical Biblical Commission, the Pope's think tank, said it this way, Not everything in the Bible is expressed in accordance with the demands of the contemporary sciences because the biblical writers reflect the limits of their own personal knowledge in addition to those of their time and culture. Just like I said, the Bible is fully human as well as fully divine. This is not a guilty secret. It's not a concession to secularism. It's not a compromise. This is the church's faith and she proclaims it as such even to youth. How many of you have ever heard of UCAT? Anybody here? The Youth Catechism of the Catholic Church. It was a gift of Pope Benedict XVI to the youth of the church in the world at World Youth Day in Madrid in 2011. It's a pretty cool book because what they did was they asked young people to come up with questions about their faith. And then they went through those questions and tried to group, bring them into groups and answer those questions based on the Catechism of the Catholic Church but right, but within a new language in which young people advise them, the best way to explain and so on, these various important doctrines of the church. In the UCAT, or the youth catechism number fifteen, the question given by youth is by the young people was how can sacred scripture be truth if not everything in it is right? Listen to the answer that it gives. The Bible, or sacred scripture, right? is not meant to convey precise historical information or scientific findings to us. Moreover, the authors were children of their time. They shared the ideas of their cultural environment and sometimes were also held back by its errors. Nevertheless, everything that man must know about God and the way of his salvation is found with infallible certainty in sacred scripture right? Hopefully that captures well what I've been saying here, right? From the perspective of saving truth, we have infallible certainty that the Bible does not mislead us. Hopefully that helps you relate this to our main issue and see where I'm going with all of this, which is when we get to the relationship between the Bible and modern science a little bit more deeply. To seek to confirm the truth of the Bible by seeing if it agrees with science, is like trying to confirm whether or not I'm a baptized Catholic by taking a DNA sample from me. Equally misguided would be to evaluate a scientific idea as true or not by checking to see if it agrees with the Bible. From the perspective of faith, morals, and some important historical truths closely related to them that are necessary to our salvation, the Bible doesn't ever mislead us. From the perspective of nuclear physics or biological evolution, the Bible is not trying to lead us, right? As John Paul II once said, the theological teaching of the Bible and church does not seek to teach us the how of things, but rather the why of things, right? In other words... This is a quote that I often use in presenting to teachers, young people, all audiences, right? Science takes things apart to show us how they work. The Bible brings things together to show us what they mean. Their deepest truth. Truths that most often we simply could not know about God's intentions unless he revealed them to us. That we could not come to through reason alone. Reason unaided by faith. Okay. So onward. With that in mind, now that we have a clearer picture of the church's teaching about the truth of sacred scripture, we can approach the first creation account, the beautiful chapter that begins the, the Bible, and ask, what saving truth about the universe, about the world, and about God's relationship to it, does it offer to us? What is it trying to say to us? To frame that issue, I want to answer using one big word, three easy definitions, and by the process of elimination, learn a better way, I think a truer and more excellent way of reading the first creation account than the way, say, Richard Dawkins rejects it or Ken Ham reads it. My hope is that you'll find this so easy to follow that you can walk out today and be able to share it with anybody, right? It's not very difficult. It is also a pretty serious oversimplification. But I think it's sometimes helpful to oversimplify as long as you basically remain on, on target. So here we go. Let's start with the big word, a cosmogony. Maybe you've ever heard the word cosmogony before. It's basically two Greek words, cosmos and gonos beginning of the cosmos. A cosmogony is any account of the beginning and development of the universe, right? And if we go through human history, we can distinguish very broadly three kinds of cosmogonies, right? There are mythological cosmogonies, accounts of the beginning and development of the universe that replaces natural causes with powerful gods and goddesses. There are scientific cosmogonies. These are accounts of the beginning and development of the universe that discover the natural causes and effects involved in the universe's beginning and development. And then finally, there are symbolic cosmogonies, accounts of the beginning and development of the universe in which symbolism teaches us something deeper about the universe that we could not get through science. So I want to take a look at each kind of cosmogony and we can ask what kind of cosmogony is the first creation account, right? So without further ado, let's move on to talk about a mythological cosmogony. And to do this I'd like to focus on one that the people of Israel encountered during their exile in Babylon. It's called the Enuma Elish, the Babylonian account of creation. And it begins with these words. The Enuma Elish says, when in the height heaven was not named and the earth beneath did not yet bear a name, Apsu, fresh water, the father of the gods, and Tiamat, salt water, chaos, mother of the gods, mingled their waters together. Then in the midst of heaven, the gods were created. The rest of the story is interesting. The father god, Apsu, and the mother god actually begin to regret their offspring. They have so many little baby gods all over the universe that their loud and their racket bothers Apsu. And he wishes for their death. And so Tiamat actually begins to kill them. Right? She gets a demon general, Kingu, and they begin to slaughter the the offspring. Then a hero emerges from the offspring, Marduk. And Marduk kills his mother and makes the earth and sky out of her body parts. It ends with Marduk and the other gods slaying the dragon god, Kingu, Tiamat's lover and the commander of her army, right? Then they take the blood that comes from Kingu, and they mix it with clay, and they make human beings. And the human beings are made to be the slaves of the gods, right? To worship the sun god, the moon god, and the star gods, what a delightful account of life, the universe, and everything. I try, to, I try to repeat that often to my young children as I'm putting them to sleep at night. So. Okay, does that sound like the first creation account? No. In Genesis 1, first of all, there is only one God. He doesn't kill anything. He doesn't have sex or break things to make the world. What does he do? He speaks the world into being in the words of a biblical scholar father michael duggan in genesis 1 the universe is simply the event of god's personal word let there be light let the earth teem with living things let the waters teem with living things so on hopefully right we can see here that genesis 1 is something a little bit deeper than at least a pagan mythology there's certainly remnants of mythology in the old testament Mythology was the way that ancient people thought about the world, right? But Genesis 1 is not, at least in this sense, a mythological cosmogony. Okay, well, let's move on then to second category. Let me show you a picture. Oops, sorry. How many of you know the guy there on the left? It's Albert Einstein. Have any of you ever heard of the priest that's standing next to him? Raise your hand if you've heard about it. A few of you have. Okay. That's interesting. These two men together are responsible for the current scientific understanding of the age of the universe, which is about 14 billion years, right? And an understanding of its initial state. Let me explain what happened. Einstein's theory of special relativity was confirmed, right, in the late teens, the late 19-teens, right, through astronomical observation. And his theory, or his theory of special relativity, was based on certain mathematical equations. This priest, this Belgian priest who was also an astrophysicist, looked at those equations and realized that they could describe a universe that was expanding from a beginning, an actual initial point. And so he published a paper in which he described this as what he called the hypothesis of the primeval atom, using mathematics and astronomy and physics to develop a correct theoretical framework for talking about the actual origin of the physical universe. Um, here, Here are his words. At the origin, all of the mass of the universe would exist in the form of a unique atom, The radius of the universe, though not strictly zero, being relatively small, the whole universe would be produced by the disintegration of this primeval atom. Einstein thought he was crazy. He actually sent him a telegram in which he said, your calculations are correct, but your grasp of physics is abominable. At the same time, a man that we've all heard of, named Hubble, was actually at the Mount Wilson Observatory watching the expansion of the universe. And when his data began to be integrated with what Father Lumet saw, Einstein changed his mind. He called his rejection of Father Lemet's idea the biggest blunder of his life. He called it his blindness. And Einstein, who was a great human being, actually went to Father Lemet's presentation of his idea at a conference. He sat in the back row and after Lamette was finished, he stood up and led a standing ovation in his honor. Right? And this picture was actually taken after that event. Um, this was a Catholic priest. He didn't just hypothesize what we now call the Big Bang. This was a man who celebrated the sacraments, who offered pastoral care to souls. Listen to this. This is another quote from him. He says... He said, does the church need science? Certainly not. The cross and the gospel are sufficient for her. But nothing human is alien to the Christian. How could the church fail to take an interest in the most noble of the strictly human occupations, the search for truth? He was actually celebrated by Pope Pius XII for his discovery. Um, Okay. Notice the description I just gave you, and think about the first creation account, and I'll ask you the question, is the first creation account a scientific cosmogony? It doesn't involve any equations. There are numbers, sure, and I want to talk about those in a little while, but there's no quantitative measurements or mathematical formula to describe the beginning. Right? We'll see in a second that the, the numbers in, the Bible, in, in Genesis have a very specific purpose. But I'll get back to that. In other words, Genesis 1 is not a scientific cosmogony. Modern scientific forms of reasoning did not even exist at the time it was written, in around 600 BC. All right. Thanks then simply to a process of elimination, hopefully you can see that what I'm proposing to you is that Genesis 1 is a symbolic cosmogony, an account of the beginning and development of the universe that uses symbolism to show the deepest meaning. Of the universe. I want to take a look at some of the symbols that we find there, right? In order to see what the authors of Genesis, inspired by the Holy Spirit, are trying to tell us about the world in which we live. Right? One of them has to do with the structure of the story. The six days of making, it's often referred to as by biblical scholars, right? And these actually interact with each other. They make two columns of events, days 1 through 3 and days 4 through 6. And when you consider them in side-by-side in two sets, each day in the first set matches the corresponding day in the second. So on day 1, God makes light. What does he do on day 4? He makes the lights, the sun, the moon, the stars. On day 2, he makes sky and sea. On day five, he makes birds and fish. On day three, he makes the dry land and the vegetation. On day six, he makes the land creatures and humans who eat these plants and fruits. What is the author of Genesis using this symbolism to tell us? To tell us that the world has an order to it. That all of its parts, its details fit together. Right? That God didn't simply make the world to see what wackiness he could create, but that he made the world in such a way that we can discern in it an order. What does science do? Science discerns that order in deep ways that he wasn't necessarily thinking about, right? But there is no conflict between the two perspectives. The whole thing fits and fits together perfectly. Horizontally, among the world's creatures, the universe is interdependent. Just as it's vertically dependent for its existence on God. When you move past the structure and have a little background on the literary symbols of the ancient Jewish, Jewish people, especially their number symbols, you can find them everywhere. For instance, one of the most obvious ones is the number seven, right? Based on the seven days of the week. That number symbolizes completion and perfection in Jewish theology, right? The interesting thing is it's not just the seven days of creation. Guess how many times God declares the goodness of what he has made? Seven times. In other words, this is exactly what I wanted. This is the world, and I'm pleased with it. It is good. Can you imagine what a powerful message that would have been for the Israelites in their exile among a people who believed the world came from the dead body parts of a goddess, and that human beings came from the blood of a demon. You imagine how important it must have been to them to repeat the story again and again to their children in a culture that told them something the exact opposite, right? And which told them a completely opposite message. Does the number 10 have any important significance in the Bible, particularly the Old Testament? Anybody ever heard of the Ten Commandments, right? Okay, there we go. The number of commandments given given by the Lord through Moses. Guess how many times God speaks in the first creation account? Ten times, right? Which symbolizes the truth that the universe is created as a space for goodness, right? God speaks the universe into being with with a ten, and then God commands us human creatures with a ten, right? Ten Commandments. In other words, God doesn't create the universe as an amoral place to be exploited. The order that we see in the world is a sign to us that God calls us to live virtuously according to what is good and true. Another interesting symbol that we find in the first creation account has to do with um, how God commands things into being. In every case except for one, he just says, let there be. Let there be light. Let the waters teem with living things, right, and so on. Until he gets to human beings, God stops. And then he says, let us make humanity in our image after our likeness. And it goes through this whole litany, right? God stops and mulls it over about what he's about to do. The interesting thing is he's about to make the creature that mulls things over, right? The one creature that actually thinks and deliberates. It's a signal that something is coming that is truly in his image, right? God is perfect truth, perfect reason, and his creatures are those who can reason, right? His image are those who can reason, human beings, Another interesting thing is an omission. In Genesis 1, there's a pattern that happens in every day, every time God creates something. He calls it into being, let there be light. He beholds it, and then he declares its goodness. With human beings, God never declares their goodness. After human beings are created, it simply says, God looked at everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. What is that about, right? I mean, this is his image and likeness. Why wouldn't he say, oh, this is good. You were super awesome. Well, human goodness, is that something that's simply up to God? No. Human goodness is up to God and us, right? Our goodness is a question in suspense. It's up to us to freely cooperate with our creator, to live according to what he has revealed about goodness, if we want to be good. Um, the interesting thing about that is the New Testament authors take off on that immediately when Jesus shows up to be baptized by John we just finished celebrating a couple of weeks ago the feast of John, uh, feast of the baptism of Jesus he gets in line with the sinners John tells him, whoa, you know you should be baptizing me and Jesus says, this is to fulfill all righteousness he goes down into the water And then the voice from heaven says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. There's God declaring human goodness. Right? Here is the one who is good without any qualification. Right? And the message is clear. In baptism, we can unite ourselves to him and be fulfilled in goodness too. In other words, with all of this, the first creation account doesn't tell us how the universe was made. It tells us in symbolism and poetic language the deepest meaning of the universe. Oftentimes when I give presentations like this, I find it sad to see that some people feel that symbolism is not more important than scientific details. I don't think that's true, right? Like, I can't even remember what gold is with the initial on the periodic table of the elements, but I can tell you that this symbol has transformed the entire trajectory of my life every single day right? Symbols are the deepest way in which we go beyond what sh- what physical reality can say and craft it into something deeper, something spiritual, something human. Okay, I'm almost done. Finally, Does God desire science of his human creatures? Now that we have a better understanding of what we mean by the truth of the Bible and what we mean specifically about the truth of the first creation account, let's turn things around. Instead of looking for scientific truth in the Bible, which causes confusion and conflict and is not the Catholic approach, let's see if perhaps the Bible can offer us a better perspective, or rather a perspective that welcomes a scientific approach to reality. For believers, that's the most important issue, it seems to me. If the Bible truthfully tells us all that we need to know about God for the sake of our salvation, perhaps it can tell us whether or not God desires us to engage in science. Is science something God desires? Does it please God that people pursue scientific careers? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it indifferent to their salvation that some human beings are science scientists? Right? Well, let's think about some of the assumptions that are involved in science. Right? And I want to point to one in particular now that most people don't think about. The fact is that in order to have a scientific culture that advances scientifically, it has to be a culture that sees or has a willingness to pursue truth in a way that goes beyond all societal boundaries. Think about that. If you want to have a scientific community, you can't have everybody saying, this truth is just for me. I'll never show it to anyone. I'll never tell anybody about it. And I don't want it to be reviewed by anyone. I want to keep it all to myself, right? No. In order to have a scientific community, you have to have knowledge that's freely shared. Scientists are so much better at this than theologians. I'm serious. But when I was, when I'm writing my, I just finished the second edition of my textbook, which is in production now. And when I go to look for a scientific paper, I can usually find it for free on the Internet. Not so theology. Like, I'm going to be spending big bucks to get that article that I need. Okay. Anyway, so this attitude that truth should be shared, that we have an obligation to share truth with all humanity, is a truth we find in sacred scripture. We find it in the Book of Wisdom. The author of the Book of Wisdom says... What I have learned without interest, I pass on without reserve. I do not intend to hide her that is wisdom's riches. For wisdom is an inexhaustible treasure to human beings. And those who acquire it win God's friendship. The Bible teaches that knowledge is meant to be shared, not hoarded away. Christianity takes this to a whole new level. Once Christ calls upon his disciples to go out into the whole world and teach the gospel to all creatures, making disciples of them all, the biblical value of sharing truth is carried on the wings of the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. By the time of the scientific revolution, Europe had developed a culture of sharing knowledge through a university system that had been established primarily to explore the Christian faith and to bring experts together from everywhere so that they could share their knowledge with each other. Universities are the historical embodiment of the biblical idea that we should share the riches of truth with all humanity. And it was in the first universities, the Christian universities of Europe, that modern science was born. So whether LSU recognizes it or not, it has a biblical origin. It's biblical to go to college. Tell your parents. All right, anyway. All this pales next to the command of God in Genesis chapter 1. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Be masters of the fish of the sea, the birds of heaven, and all living animals on the earth. In other words, God commands that human beings have oversight of the world he created. It's not an optional exercise. It's an integral one. In Genesis 2, God parades the animals before Adam so that he can name them all. That's symbolic of the urge for discovery that fuels all science. The first human being is portrayed as the first investigator of nature. The message is clear. Science is good, especially when science is invested with reverence for the world it understands. Right? We're not simply here to make things or do stuff. We're placed on earth to behold and understand the good, beautiful, and true things which God has made to communicate his love to us. Science is one important way that we accomplish God's will. One of the things that really fueled my ability to write my curriculum was that someone shared with me a zip drive of all of the addresses that John Paul II had ever given on faith and science. It was October of 2005, and Pope John Paul II had only died just six months prior. I was stunned to find out that John Paul II had given 144 addresses on faith and science. Right? And one of them that really caught my attention was one he gave six months before his death to the Pontifical Academy of the Sciences. Right? And I want to share that with you. This is what he said. See if you can see this kind of openness of Scripture, in fact, encouragement of Scripture to investigate the universe in these words. Contemporary scientists, faced with the explosion of new knowledge and discoveries, frequently feel that they are standing before a vast and infinite horizon. Indeed, the inexhaustible bounty of nature with its promise of ever-new discoveries can be seen as pointing beyond itself to the creator, who has given it to us as a gift, whose secrets remain to be explored. May your patient and humble dialogue with the world of nature bear fruit in ever new discoveries and in a reverent appreciation of its untold marvels. Does that sound like a pope who doesn't want scientists? This fall, um, after I made the difficult decision to move to the University of Notre Dame and to move my family away from our beloved Louisiana to Indiana. Um, We we actually arrived on July 17th, three days before my 50th birthday, and on my 50th birthday I made gumbo because it wasn't our house until gumbo was made in it. And I got a phone call and discovered that the program I had just taken over the directorship of that we had won an award from the Vatican. And this fall, we actually got to go and receive that award in the Pontifical Academy of the Sciences building, right in the Vatican Gardens. So I got to actually be in the place where John Paul II shared these words with scientists as he ended his career. Okay. I had a video I wanted to show, but we don't have sound. Anyway, it was kind of cool. All right, I'll stop there. <laughs> we could just watch it and not understand what's being said, but, you know. In conclusion, let me offer you a final quote from St. John Paul II, which is a great summary of what I hope you've learned today. He said this in 1981. The Bible itself speaks to us of the origin of the universe and its makeup not in order to provide us with a scientific treatise. In other words, not a scientific perspective. That's not the truth of the Bible, right? But in order to state the correct relationships of man with God and with the universe... The sacred book, likewise, wishes to tell us that the world was not created as the seat of the gods, as was taught by other cosmogonies and cosmologies, but was rather created for the service of man and the glory of God. Any other teaching about the origin and makeup of the universe is alien to the intentions of the Bible, which does not wish to teach us how heaven was made, but how one goes to heaven. Amen, and thank you. Okay, so I'm actually here to also answer questions. So now that I'm done with all that, if there is any questions that you have about faith and science that you'd like to ask, I'd be happy to give my best shot at them. Don't place too much confidence in my ability to do that with every question, but I'll do the best I can with what you've got. So, are there any questions about my presentation or anything else? Yeah, man, what's your name? Trey. Trey. What's up, Trey? Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, well, that's a very good question. So, if you didn't hear, the question is, how do we reconcile a natural development of human beings from other species before them? with the fact that human beings have a distinct capacity or a power that these other creatures don't have, right? Um, I think that you have to move beyond biology, not leaving it behind, not rejecting it or changing it, to begin to answer the whole question about what is a human being, right? Because we do demonstrate capacities that seem to transcend anything our machines and other animals can do. Right? Think about um, concepts like circularity. We seem to be able to think about things in the abstract, such that we can make an infinite number of applications of them, Right. Um, or think about this. One does not equal zero. Right? you understand what I mean by those words? One does not equal zero. Are you not immediately certain that there is no possible universe and one can equal ze- where one could equal zero? We don't see animals that can do that. I do not want to belittle the animals. It is a modern philosophical mistake to downplay the powers and capacities of animals. If you read St. Thomas Aquinas, one of the greatest theologians in the history of the Church, he talks very highly about their ability to make natural judgments and those kind of things. But then he says this, however, the ability to make judgments about one's judgment belongs only to reason, right? With this in mind, we talk about the human soul, right? Which is also a sometimes misleading and misunderstood concept. It's not a ghost floating around in us that is our real self, right? Um, this way of being an organism that we call a human being, right? As something that can transcend and does transcend death, right? In our Catholic faith, we talk about the um, intermediate state in which human beings have passed through from death, you know, have passed over basically have died, passed on, but somehow continue to exist, right? Not in a bodily state, right? But continue to be there for the resurrection of the body, which we proclaim, right? which we believe on the basis of our faith will happen at the end of time, right? So, does that help a little? Yeah, yeah, okay, good, good. So, Human beings are animals. We just happen to also be rational animals. And the ability to be rational is what distinguishes us from these other creatures. Are we the only rational animals in the universe? We don't know, right? Are we the only rational animals that have ever been on our planet? People make some interesting claims about Neanderthals, right? Um, Very, very complex hominids, right? Who buried their dead um, and that kind of thing? So who knows, right? Generally, the Catholic approach is: if there are more rational creatures in the universe, if ET is out there, if if he can reason and be, then he's human in the theological sense. Because to be human in the theological sense is to be a rational animal, right? He's not human in the biological sense, but that's you know, but that's not the most important thing. And generally, the Catholic attitude is: bring them on, man. We we love them all. more creatures out there in God's image, Amen. Right? So, so I I, I would I would caution you from being from allowing you know, some people will get into anxiety about you know if we find rational creatures out there that are you know that are not human. What does that tell us about the Bible? Well, it just tells us that God is perfectly creative, and you know what I mean. Um, a great mystic from the Middle Ages, Meister Eckhart, said God enjoys himself and wants us to join him. There you go. Maybe he wants lots of different kinds of creatures to join him. It's Awesome, right? Um, The director of the Vatican Observatory, Brother Guy Consolmagno, he he, he, he just published a book, a very good book, by the way, if you ever want to look at it, called Would You Baptize an Extraterrestrial? (laughs) And when he was asked that question, his response was, only if she asked me to. Anyway. (laughs) Other questions? Yes, sir. What's your name? Mark. Mark.
0: Kind of a big, scary question, and um, you can take it in any direction you want. Um, Is there a problem with the philosophical or scientific claim that Adam and Eve were not historical Mm -hmm. figures, that they're merely symbolic?
1: Oh, okay, yeah. Um,
0: And, you know, does that have a connection to, like the, um, the ancestry of Christ or Christ as the new Adam, like, Mm -hmm. if we were to discover that they could not have been historical figures, you know,
1: I put that. Okay, sure. (laughs) Well, okay, so first of all, there had to be some first human beings because here I am, right? And here you are, right? So how many there were, right? Does, does the Bible answer that question? Well, the second creation account talks about a a man named humanity marrying a woman named life. Does that sound symbolic to you? Sure. What we do believe, though, is that however many there were at the beginning of the human race, that they were called into a communion with God, offered gifts that went beyond their nature to make it possible for them to be in communion with God within a world of change and All the things that we have around us, right? And that they rejected that gift, right? So the human nature we have is the best that the natural world could offer, as far as we know, right? But it wasn't all God wanted. When we call Jesus the last Adam, or as is often said, the true Adam, what we're saying is this one here, this is the one God wanted. Humanity not united with Christ is just a sketch. Our nature is a question to us, right? My nature inclines me towards bonding with other people, right? But our very kind of socially, very, very deeply socially spe- social species and socialization-oriented species also tends to make human beings engage in outgroup bias, people who are different than me, a different color than me, a different language than mine, a different culture, right? So, does my nature solve the problem for me of who I should be? It inclines me in two directions, right? And they seem almost inseparable from each other. How do I find out like someone like St. Peter Claver, the great slave of the slaves, who for 35 years would make his way out to every boat that came into Cartagena, I didn't say that right. And right, and, and begin to wash their wounds and care for them, and who baptized thirty five thousand of them because of the love he had. Notice, right, he realized that his in group was all humanity. Where did he get that idea? He got that idea from Christ. He got that idea from God revealing himself to humanity, right? So that's, the, that's what we mean when we talk about Jesus as the last Adam. And if you want to read something great about that, Joseph Ratzinger's masterpiece, Introduction to Christianity, is the best source, I think, to, to read on that. If you want to read a, an incredible book, which I wish everyone would. Oh, yeah, another book, by the way, Thomistic Evolution by Father Nicanor Ostriaco, would be a good choice. And you can get that at ThomisticEvolution.org. Are we done with questions? Or?
0: I have just a couple of announcements, and I know typically we keep this at an hour. So if you need to leave, you can. But if Dr. Baglow yeah. wants, to, wants to stay I'll for anybody else who questions. wants to ask any other questions, great. But that, so Father Nicanor also has a YouTube about uh, evolution and creation, and, and it's, it's pretty incredible. So with this book, you can YouTube his, his lecture. That's, it's great. So if you'd like to leave, you're welcome to leave. If you'd like to stay, Dr. Baglow is going to stay. Can we give him a round of applause? <laughs>